Radio is your dedicated Porsche and car podcast, taking you closer than ever to the world's finest sports cars and the culture and history behind them. Brought to you by NineWorks.co.uk, the innovative online platform for Porsche enthusiasts, NineWorks Radio is presented by Porsche journalist Lee Sibley and 993 owner and engineer Andy Brooks, with special input from friends and experts around the industry, as well as our valued listeners. Enjoy the episode. Hello, listeners. It's Andy here. Hello, listeners. It's Lee here as well, and we are Nineworks Radio. Good evening. Good morning. Good day. Whichever it might be where you're listening. Exactly that. How are you, Andy, my good man? You fine? You well? I'm well. I'm well. Yes. Um, really good. Yeah, we had a, a little interview with uh, Derek Bell earlier today, so we'll be <laughs> Lit- playing that. A little interview. <laughs> yeah. We had um, that was a it was a it was a first for us here at Nineworks Radio because I believe it's the first time, Andy, you and I have interviewed a member of the Order of the British Empire. <laughs> Check you. <laughs> <laughs> Very so, good with your knowing the full acronym. Well, we thought after last week with uh, the legendary Tony Hatter, possibly yep. sh- possibly should be Sir Tony Hatter. But, um, <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> you know, where, where do we go after that? So we thought, well, we better chase down somebody with an MBE. And um, yeah, luck- <laughs> we found him. <laughs> luckily, yeah, luckily, Derek Bell was floating around um, and give us time from his very busy schedule. So that was an absolutely fascinating chat. And I cannot wait to to share that with everybody. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It was, uh, well, I can't believe how is he going to be 80 in a couple of weeks time? Yeah. Um, he just, he looks 60 um sounds 50 <laughs> it's yeah. just yeah, yeah amazing man with without a doubt credit credit to himself credit to his profession and and also to Porsche as well you know and again it's great that people like Derek are so uh, generous with their time really to tell these stories because again you know it goes on a medium like this podcast and it's there forever for everybody to listen to so yeah. absolutely fantastic we've uh, we've got that coming up haven't we but before that there are one or two uh, admin or housekeeping bits that we just wanted to run over. The first yeah. being our new Patreons. We're always so grateful and, yes. and happy to welcome new Patreons to this podcast. Indeed, yeah. We've got a couple of new Patreons. You're going to be laughing at me as normal. It's my favourite bit of the pod, Andy, yeah. is this. Yeah. Favourite bit. you trying to pronounce these names. Well, the first one's okay, I think. It's uh, Kayleen Richardson. Um, he's in the US um, and he's got well, the sister or what do you call brother of my car, uh, he's got a red 993 with Rotiform RFN, um, NFNs on him. Oh, on fantastic. So, yeah, a little bit of a twinny. He's donating us uh, a coffee a month. So thank you very fantastic. much, Kayleen. Fantastic. Fantastic. And we have uh, another US uh, listener, Rob Leader. Um, again, another coffee um, towards us. Thank you very much. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Yeah, always great to welcome new Patreons. Absolutely. Um, talking to patrons, we need to do our competition. Yes. From yes. the last episode, which was the gear knobs. Yes. Um, so giving a gear knob away to one of our patrons, um, they have all said a big fat yes on a post on Patreon. So thank we- you for that. We better just say, hadn't we? So that was um, that was episode three when we had Simon on by Built by Basil. We kind of yes. got lost down this rabbit hole of uh, Porsche wooden shifters. We got fascinated by the um, historical context and uh, like modern equivalents, basically. And that's where Simon by Built by Basil comes into it. So yeah. we had a chat with him, and he very kindly said he would give give away a free wooden shifter 
to one lucky Patreon yeah. member. Um, and he also gave away uh, a discount code as well. Yes, which, which is available which, to everybody. Yeah, and still available. Um, if you go onto his website and put in the discount code NINEWORKS, spelled W-E-R-K-S, which obviously yeah. you know anyway, um, you will get 15% discount from from Simon, which is very kind so, of him. Yes, it's worth pointing out as well that the actual website is built by Basil.com. Correct, yes. So, well yeah, slap, slap nine works in there in the discount code. You get 15% off. So happy days. We try yeah. to give. Yeah, right, indeed. <laughs> We're very grateful to Simon for his generosity there. But this is um, for Patreons anyway. It's a big moment because someone is about to get a, uh, a free wooden shifter for a portion yeah. of their choice. So so I've got them all up on my screen, all, all the S's from Patreon, and I'm going to scroll down and you're going to tell me when to stop and that will pick the winner. Okay, let me know when you're going. Ready. Right, three, two, one, go. Keep going, keep Jeez. going, keep going, keep going, stop. Oh, keep going, stop. Okay. Right, it is Terry Pavlis. Well done, Terry. Spot on. Uh, I know he's got a lovely black GTS, which um, will look fantastic with a, a wood gear knob in there. Oh, yeah, what one? 997, 991? 997. Oh yeah, excellent. Absolutely yeah. excellent. I tell you what, actually, I have a good faith that um another member of our listening fraternity who also has a 997, an RS4 yeah. litre, no less, has ordered a wooden shifter from Check. Built by Basil. Nice. So I mean there's not too many 997 RS4 litres that are going to be rolling around the planet with a wooden shifter. Absolutely. So that's that's pretty cool. But no, yeah, congratulations to Terry as well. Like um we'll, we'll put you in touch with Simon and get that sorted. So Absolutely first class, yeah. Good. Right. Uh, was On, there any other housekeeping? To be yeah. Done? So uh, as we are uh, approaching the season of giving, we also have another Jeez, discount. It's not, is it? Well, it's, it's not, coming up. Yeah, it's coming it up, my friend. Jeez. We have um, another discount to offer listeners, and indeed anyone associated with Nine Works. So Heritage Parts Centre, who supply all manner of uh, Porsche parts, old and new, or four Porsches, old and new, classic and modern. Um, their website is heritagepartcenter.com. They yeah. are giving 10% off permanently to, uh, well, for as, for as long as we're working with them, <laughs> um, to all like, yeah, nine works like followers and members and whatnot. So have a look at the website, heritagepartcenter.com. Have a look through the Porsche parts. And yeah, in the discount code, just put in nine works 10 and you get 10% off. Awesome. So that is for everybody to enjoy. So yeah, please, please do so. Fabulous. Good. Uh, one more thing that I thought of. Um, I wonder if we could get our great listeners to have a quick go on doing reviews on Apple podcasts for yeah. us. Yeah. We'd love a little push if, um, if you're up for that. Thank yeah. you very much. In advance. Fan fantastic. That's probably about it in terms of housekeeping. We know everybody's waiting to hear from Derek Bell, MBE. Yep. So shall we, shall we bring him on? Mr. Derek Bell, MBE. Thank you so much for joining us today on Nine Works Radio. My pleasure, of course. Uh, anything I can do to sort of spread the word about motorsport and cars, um, I'm happy to do so. <laughs> uh, you've um, you've been a very busy person the past few weeks. Um, a bit of Goodwood in there, a bit of a, a rally tour through France as well, I think you said. Yeah, well, we've had three Goodwoods in the last three months, yes. which has been amazing. Yeah. Uh, which were all fun and, and time-consuming, but nonetheless great to be, so, you know, sort of back in the groove a bit with all your mates and all the cars and <laughs> the people that are involved and to see the public enjoying it. You know, I, 
I was also the Grand Marshal at Le Mans back in, uh, I guess, late July. And, uh, you know, that was a great honor. And then it was the first time I'd been to an event, like most people, for 18 months. Yeah. And then to see, you know, Le Mans were allowed to have 50,000 people there. And, and the, the great thing that I must point out is that everybody in the crowd for three days wore their face mask. Yeah, excellent. And we just yeah. and I've been to no event in England when I've ever seen a face mask, or very rare. <laughs> so no wonder we're having a few more problems if you have to believe all that stuff, which I believe I do. So anyway, I, it was it, Lamar was spectacular, you know, to be honoured like that at Lamar yeah. was special. Yeah, I'm I'm very sure. And um, you we're well, we're a couple of weeks away from your 80th birthday as well. Um, yeah. Wow, you, I can't you, believe that. Yeah, it's incredible, isn't it? Um, yeah. We're, what, what do you take, Derek? Yeah. <laughs> yeah what's the secret in fact i never thought about it until the last two years and i'm going oh hell this is really getting unfunny because you can see the, you can see the door closing at the end of the street and it's pretty un, unfunny really but mm-hmm. i mean I, I just do everything the way i've always done it um yeah. i mean i i do try to do as much exercise but then you end up getting sort of i pulled a groin muscle the other week doing something and then you know wrist hurts because of holding the steering wheel so much over the years and you go, well, that stopped me doing certain exercises. Not that I've ever been fanatical about exercise, but I've always done it. And I've never really drunk that much, uh, which yeah. I guess helps me. And because, of, you know, for the sport that I was involved in or any sport you're involved in, you have to be, you know, very you know, honest about it and look after yourself. But I was yeah. never one that sort of rushed to the gym every day for two hours at six o'clock in the morning. I, I'd rather have my sleep. I thought my body deserved that more than it did to be tortured. <laughs> well, I think I think it's um it's done done you very well. You, I, I wouldn't say you look over sixty to be honest. So, well, you're very you're very you're very kind. No, I mean, yeah, pe- I mean, people are st- staggeringly uh, generous with their comments about me when they see me, and I'm sort of looking. I go, yeah, yeah. I look at people sort of somewhat younger than me, and I go, God, he's out of shape, isn't he? I wonder how old he is. He must be nearly eighty, and you find that he's only over sixty-five or seventy, and you go, well, I guess I've just been very lucky. Yeah. <laughs> Good for you. Well, as as we're discovering, you're clearly not slowing down anytime soon. Um, how, how much of your time do you kind of split between the UK and, and obviously your life in the in the US as well? Basically, we um, we went out to America for the for the winters as much as we could. Florida yeah. is a pretty good spot, and you know the season started in the early day. Well, even now, but not for me as much. But the Daytona 24 hour test weekend, and then the race at the end of January, and then. Then we had, not in a particular order, but we had the Miami Grand Prix, and then we had uh, St. Petersburg, and then we had Sebring 12 hours, all in those first three months. So there's no point really being stuck back in Pagham in the freezing cold, <laughs> uh, trying Absolutely. to keep in shape when I could be in Florida, sort of cycling bikes and, and, and generally having a bloody good time, to be honest. <laughs> so, so, um, so that's what we did. And then gradually I've ended up being there for sort of, uh, probably six months seven months a year yeah yeah but okay. it's, it you know it's worked out very well because my career latterly um you know was very much involved in america where less and less yeah. in europe although yeah. of course then i had the right program with bentley which was very interesting great fun from 2000 so but you know i was back with bentley and it was an honor to to work with them drive the cars and that sort of thing and be their sort of ambassador, if you like. Hmm. But of course, in fact, that was that that work was all around the world. So I wasn't stuck in England or even in Florida, for that matter. I was in Australia and South Africa and places yeah. in launches of new cars because they were making that big push with their new products. You know? Yeah, 
yeah great great place to be then mm. by, by the sounds yeah. of it um, yeah Derek, I've had a, a real privilege of um, speaking with you and interviewing you a good couple of times now in my relatively short career. Um, the last time was at Porsche Centre Portsmouth when uh, you were presented with your uh, Derek Bell British Legends Carrera GTS. Um, it's a bit of a mouthful to say. Um, <laughs> Just say 911 is the answer. Yes, yeah. exactly that. Exactly <laughs> that. But um, yeah, like, you know, how, how have you got on the car with the car? Like, do, I mean, do you still have it or like what's the what's the scenario? Yeah, well, if we're on, if you wanted to see it, it's literally 20 yards from me right now. Excellent. Okay. Well, yeah, yeah. it's good to hear you've still got it. So, no, but good God, yes. Um, I, the strange thing was, I didn't really, I just thought, what do I need another car for? Not that I got lots of cars, but you know, what do I need? You can only really drive one at a time. And Misty, my wife, sort of said, you, you need to have it. You know, it's got your name on it. It's historic and, you know, not historic. It's part of your, your, your career. Yeah. And above all, really, it was the fact that Porsche have never really honoured any of their drivers, if that's the right word, honour. I mean, we should honour them for giving us the opportunity to drive their wonderful cars. And the fact they stuck us, I was lucky enough to get planted in the car to win a few races. <laughs> but so when the car came up, Misty was all over me and said, oh, you've got to have it, you've got to have it. And I just, I, I wasn't that enthusiastic. Anyway, then she pressured, sort of pressured me into having it because I obviously had to purchase it, which is fair enough. Yeah. And, um, of course, once we got it, and then, of course, COVID came, so it sat at the house here for, for sort of for nearly two years. <laughs> so it's still brand and, new. Uh, it's still <laughs> brand new. And uh, then, of course, we came back uh, two months ago for the first time in two years, uh, basically. And, um, you know, I then started to use it. And, I, well, I wasn't driving it yesterday, but I drove it up at Goodwood every day of the weekend. And I did that tour across Europe uh, back two or three months ago. Well, actually, that was a month ago, but then, Prior to that, I'd driven across Europe to Le Mans. Yeah. And it, I, it, I really realized what an amazing car it is. It's strange how the 911 developed um, because in the very early days when I knew Porsche, going back to the 70s when I worked on the Le Mans movie with Steve McQueen and everybody, it's my very first sort of public time, as it were. Yeah. Um, you know, the 911 was, was, was a major, no, not a major feature of the, of the film. I mean, obviously the 917 was, but... You know, it was a car that Steve started the movie off driving and then, you know, he drove it several times, his 911 during it. And that really was the first time I got to drive in one as well. And yeah. in those days, it, it was, it, it was, it had its own character, one might say. <laughs> and um, I, I must admit, I, I, I remember when Porsche said, you really need to get a 911. I went, you know, something, I'm really quite happy sort of getting my thrills when I'm driving on the racetrack. I don't need it driving across the you know, the seven bridge, which I did one <laughs> night, had a lurid moment sort of with the wind knocking the back of the car around. <laughs> and it, how it developed into this wonderful machine they have now and how they've done it within that same shape really is remarkable. The same as they did with the race cars, to be honest. But I, and this car is so beautifully balanced. I mean, it's an absolute dream to drive. And I, I've never, I mean, I love driving the turbo. It's great. I love having masses of power. But I, I just enjoy the, the sort of neutrality of the car and just how it drives so perfectly at whatever speed you're driving it at. Yeah. And, I mean, and very economical. I mean, I, I mean, I can't believe it. I get 31 miles to the gallon out of it. I mean, that's just unheard of. Crazy, really. Well, yeah, on a, you know, a 450 horsepower yeah. car is, is, yeah. is incredible. The, 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 
the gts is a fantastic package anyway yeah. um it's from from your point of view it's just it's great that like you say it's um the the, the color sapphire blue and um the stickers on it is uh yeah. akin to the rothman's livery obviously yeah. that you're well, associated is, yeah. with and yeah um it, it it went very down very well with enthusiasts i know uh nick tandy and, and richard atwood who got the other two cars yeah. of course they're equally chuffed i think um yeah R- richard atwood was a little bit peeved that he had to pay for the car as well it has to be said yeah. so yeah, it's well. What he told me, but um, well, Rich is wonderful, I love him, but uh, you know, that's the way we well, that's the way we all are, really. Yeah. I just wish they'd built 30 of them, which I think they could have easily sold, yeah, because they sold all 15 in, in a week. They sold 30, well, then maybe we would have got one for free. Um, <laughs> yes, so but, uh, you know, Richard's Richard, and we love him, so you know, <laughs> I would. I wouldn't. It wouldn't have been him if he hadn't said. Yes, that yeah. No, it did. It did make me laugh. Is yeah, very yeah, honest made as me always. Laugh, too, yeah. Yeah. yeah, the um, your your car's PDK, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, it, it, yes. I, I never liked it in the racing terms. Well, I this is yeah. This oh, interesting. Well, yeah, this is what I wanted to ask you, Derek. So, I mean, your your uh, your current nine eleven is PDK, but um, you've you've got um prior experience of PDK and a lot earlier than most of us uh, mere mortals away from the racetrack. So. Yeah, back in the early eighties. Yeah. Um, so, what was that like? Well, I, you've got to get understand Porsche's sort of um philosophy, or well, certainly P- Professor Bott, who was the head of Bicycle for all those years. In fact, for the whole period until he, until he passed away. And, um, of course, he was close to the Porsche family and the, the, the previous bosses, his previous bosses over the generations almost. And their philosophy was that every race we do has to be the development of something. And I used to get a bit upset about that because I, I developed as a racing driver through my career, Formula 3, Formula 2, Formula 1, sports cars, whatever. Um, but I developed through that uh, as a, to be a racing driver not to be a development driver. <laughs> and uh, I was never that enthusiastic. So there were the odd occasion when I would say to them at the races, when they'd turn up with something totally new, which I'll tell you about in a minute, but particularly with PDK. And it was really, you know, a very slow process of making it work. And pr- physically, practically, when it came to racing with it, I remember Hans Stuck and I drove it, so it would have been like, during 84 and 85, and, and I mean, it, it just didn't, it wouldn't do more than 500 kilometers. We could win the 500K races, but when it came to 1,000 or even contemplating 24, mm-hmm. um, it was never going to last. And um, it, was, it seemed to work okay, literally, man- physically, when you were driving in the race, but it was the stopping and then restarting it when you came in the pits. And in fact, we did have the clutch uh, on the system in those days, and the clutch had about half an inch throw in it. So you pushed it, dunk, and you could tap the lever into, into first gear. And then when you released it, it just popped out. As soon as you released the clutch, there was no s- s- slipping it. I mean, boom, it yeah. would go. Like a switch. And it, that's right. That's right. And it seemed that once it was um, actually uh, in the race, so it got hot or whatever reason it was, or we'd done it already once for the previous fuel, you know, fuel stop, uh, it seemed to get to the third or fourth fuel stop, and then it would just break and it would break actually break a drive shaft or within that system it just would snap it and and the 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 problem was it was the final race of the world championship stucky and i were had we had to beat the jaguars and i think this is the right race we had to beat the jag all we do is had to finish ahead of jags or finish in the top four Derek warwick could win in a jag whoever his teammate was i can't remember in particular race 
they actually win the championship. But but as long as we're in, behind them in the top three places, it didn't really matter. And it was the thousand Ks. And just before the race, or during uh, the first day of the weekend, up comes poor old Peter Falk, who was a, sort of the basically the team manager above everybody. And he says, oh, Herr Bell, this weekend, you've got PDK and you've also got ABS. And I'm like, oh, gracious me, what the hell do I want ABS for? We've never had it on race cars. Uh, and, and I'd never tested it. And I didn't know anybody who had it, obviously had it at the factory, but not letting us do it. And there you are for the final race of the year, 1,000-kilometer race. So it's nearly six hours in Fuji. We could be both, Stucky and I could be world champions. Porsche could be world manufacturers champions, and we would be Jaguar. Yeah. And, and, and there we are, going to the event, and suddenly we're told we've got a new electronic uh, device <laughs> on the car. So I wasn't terribly happy. I didn't, <laughs> throw, a, I didn't throw a real wobbly. And Hanschuk was always very calm. He never sort of would go and get caught up in politics, yet he, he liked saying what he thinks, but he didn't seem to ever want to get involved in this sort of, uh, rattle-tattle going on with the engineers and the factory because he was German. Or I don't think he was scared. I just think he was a good man. And uh, <laughs> so he left, it, he left it to me, the Brit, the old Brit there, to make bloody fuss about everything. So I said my few words in a pleasant way to Peter Falk. I said, look, you know, I said, I don't mind testing any day of the week you want me to, but don't. I'm a racing driver, and if you want me to win races, I, that's my job, to w- try and win races with the best yeah. cars in the world. If you want me to develop something, let, I'll go to Port to Paul Ricard. I'll go to Silverstone next week, and I'll stay there for five days and five nights and go round and round and round and round to test and develop. But please don't make me do a race to do that. Anyway, you know he saw my point, but in very sort of diplomatic way, reported back to Professor Bott back in Stuttgart. And Professor Bott said and the next day I got the message, and uh, he said, "Oh, Professor Bott says that you can choose one or the other. That you've got to choose." <laughs> So you can have ABS or you can have PDK. And so immediately I just said, well, I'll have PDK because I just didn't know what ABS, how it's going to function. Yeah. Yeah. Well, of course, the crazy thing was, of course, that it actually piddled with rain the whole time. And, of course, the, the, the ABS would have been magic, you know, to have <laughs> ABS anti-lock brakes in the rain. Anyway, uh, we actually, we actually I, I think in the championship, uh, Stucky got t- t- tapped off, I think, by somebody and which in the opening laps, which made it difficult. We worked our way back, got up to like fourth. We're still in striking distance. And then things sort of went a little bit, you know, the, the, the race sort of faded out. We couldn't win it. But we, uh, but and so we finished second, you know, behind the Jag. And, uh, but we weren't close enough to it. Oh. And I, and so I remember that night, I thought, blow me down. So we didn't win the title. That was really disappointing. And um, Norbert Singer walked into reception at a hotel as I came down the stairs at like 9.30 at night. And he said to me, well done, Herr Bell. I said, what are you talking about? He said, you won the world championship. So I said, no, we didn't. Jaguars won and la, la, la. And he said, no, he said, Jaguars had something, some indiscretion appeared or something to do with their fuel system. So you, uh, we, we, uh, we beat them and you won the world championship. Wow, yeah, okay. <laughs> so that was that. Anyway. Uh, but anyway, that's a long story to tell you that I was never very happy with PDK. Uh, but that was 85. And then we never heard, an, uh, never heard another word about it until it suddenly came out in all the road cars all those years later. Wow. And of course, now it's absolutely magnificent. And uh, damn it, every car in the world has basically got PDK, although all their own the different manufacturers have their own there. But that was what we had to do. But that was Porsche. And I loved, 
I loved it because it gave us, you know, I've just told you a story, which was the story of PDK. There were other ones, not only that one of PDK. Um, you know, it was just it's the way it goes. Amazing. It really shows the engineering depth, doesn't it? That they yeah. wanted to prove stuff really. Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, Professor Bott said to me, as I, as I have mentioned before, but, you know, Professor Bott said every race has to be the development of something. And yeah. we have to prove, and, and we have to, when we go into the to a, a briefing on the Monday with our board members, we have to, you know, prove to them that we actually were racing something at the weekend, which was a benefit to the production of our cars. And, you know, people say, well, why did Porsche go racing all these years? But um, they did it to, to enhance their, their, their street models. Their road cars, yeah. Their obvious truth. Well, I, I would also say I, I totally get where you're coming from, Derek, as a racing driver. Your, your job is to win races rather than develop technology. Mm. Um, you know, but you, you've not done too bad out of it, you know, like <laughs> five Le Mans, three Daytonas, et cetera. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of worked out, I would say. Yes, it did. I, I mean, the, the, one of the funny, I didn't make many clever moves in my life, but racing moves. But when I reflect on it, I guess I, I, I don't know if it was the move. It's just that I went, oh, well, I'll just do that. And that, <laughs> that happened to be good enough. And then we happened to win or whatever. But I, I never get it. Sort of the Porsche situation was sort of, oh, you know, let's just see what happens and give it a run. And lo and behold, it worked. And yeah. eventually that's what I thought about. And I remember Porsche said to me, would, you know, that particular year, 85, I suppose it was. And they said, uh, okay, Herr Bell, you'll drive the car at Le Mans with PDK. And I said, I ain't driving that PDK at Le Mans. <laughs> I said, it, as I said before, I said, it won't do more than 300 miles. Why should it do 3,300 miles? Yeah. And they said, we'd like you to do that. And I said, I'm sorry, I'm just not, I'm not doing it. It's the only time I, but I didn't stand and shout. I just said, and said so the poor, poor guy, whoever I, I don't know if it was Norbert Singer, I spoke to or Peter Falk, and he went, oh, okay. I mean, most guys say, yeah, but yes, certainly, sir. We'll drive whatever you want. But I've, <laughs> I've had, you know, I've been with them four years. About, I've been with them probably 24 years in overall, 70 right through till 85. Um, else that's only 15 years. But whatever, I've been with them a long time. And um, I think they realized that I wasn't to be happy. And uh, no point in me going to them all if I'd, I'd, there's no point. You know, I'd won it a couple yeah. of times. And the crazy thing is they knew that we were capable of winning, whether it was me and X or me and Hans Stuck. They knew we were capable of winning it. Um, but, of course, if the car broke, it, we couldn't, you know, we weren't geniuses to make it last. It was nothing to do with the way we drove it, that it broke. It was purely something, you know, uh, mechanical that would break on the pit stops. Mm. <clears throat> and, um, you know, we, nothing, as I say, that we could do to enhance that or, or improve it. So, fortunately, they said, okay. So, they put somebody else in the car and the battery car failed. And, of course, we went through and won. So, I, I was I, generally speaking, I was right. It's when you stand your, your, you know, stand your feet in the ground and say, "No, I'm not moving," and then the whole lot collapses around you, and um, the others, you go on and win, and you look a right idiot for not following the trait. You know, but I think <laughs> most times I was right in what I agreed to, and it was it was a bit like in the beginning with you know when we got uh, motronic uh, motronic fuel systems, and that was a really tricky time. It made it very difficult um, to drive. But of course, you know, three weeks or four weeks later or two months later, the car was absolute dream and a couple of seconds of lap quicker. Mm. A lot of your early career was not Porsche. Um, yeah. Well, they, weren't there. they weren't there, really. Yeah. <laughs> so what was your first introduction to Porsche? Um, um, was it the Steve McQueen connection? Very nearly. Actually, no, it, it was 
um, the, the, my connection with Porsche came because of John Wire. And John Wire ran the Aston Martins at the Mall and had done extremely well with Moss and Salvadori and Carol Shelby and all these wonderful drivers. And uh, John then developed, you know, then did the GT40 with X1, as you well yeah. know, his famous victory or two. And um, John then ended up running the 917. Uh, but at that point, I, I was just in, I just, I was I pottering through Formula 3, Formula 2 into Formula 1. Yeah. And, and of course, Formula One, I was actually with Ferrari. And um, Ferrari in the middle of 69 pulled out of the world championship. Said, look, you know, we've, um, we're not, the cars are uncompetitive, we're stopping. So Regazzoni yeah. and Chris Amon and I had no drives. So that was it. So thank God McLaren, bless him, came along and said, Bruce McLaren said, how about driving the four-wheel drive at Silverstone, the British Grand Prix? So I went and did that, which is the usual disaster when you do a one-off and it failed. And when the suspension collapsed sort of somewhere out near Beckett's on about the eighth lap, and it was bloody slow anyway, it never worked. The aerodynamics, I do was four-wheel drive. It got better in time, but not with that car. Anyway, yeah. that was the end of that. So really, I was in the doldrums at the end of 1968, having come up in, when I started off and in four years, I'm at Ferrari. That is bad from a Lotus 7 win at Goodwood. <laughs> in the members meeting to being at Ferrari, driving the British and the Italian Grand Prix, was it was a fairly quick climb. Yeah. One that I never really appreciated until uh, recently when I saw that somebody brought it up. I mean, yeah, actually, it wasn't long, was it? Four years <laughs> in my fourth in my fourth year or something. Amazing. So, uh, but uh, the, anyway, so then in '69 they pulled out. But during that period, I have to say this, even though we are on about Porsche, it wasn't a gr such an honour to race for Mr. Ferrari. I remember certain major like, drivers um, and Ken Tyrrell, for example, said to me. Biggest mistake of your life going to Ferrari. They'll ruin your career. They, I think he might have said, "You ruin your Formula One career." And I think <laughs> he was certain. I think he was certainly right about that because in those days, things like sponsorship didn't appear. And yeah. If you didn't show your your ability straight away, well, okay, let's try the next young one, and next, and possibly somebody would get killed anyway. So, key guys would keep moving up into top positions. Over the with but five years later, guys were bringing bundles of money from sponsors. Yeah. And therefore, maintaining that drive and could carry on at a, a mid-range level, getting results, gaining tremendous experience in Formula One without necessarily having the ultimate talent that might have put them there you. Yeah. in the beginning. So that's the, the background to some of it. So I was in that period. I'm Again, it sounds like I'm moaning, but I, in the period where sponsorship didn't mean anything. And I mean, yeah. you know, Ferrari, Ferrari paid me £500 for a Grand Prix and 250 for Formula Two. And whatever you like to say, inflation wasn't didn't increase that much. <laughs> well, it, <laughs> yeah. you know, it wasn't that good. So, um, but I never complained about it because none of us did racing for the money. We did it because of the passion of racing cars. Yeah. So when Ferrari pulled out in '69, and I drove the McLaren, uh, things weren't good. And I thought, oh my great, you know. But I didn't know any different. I'd been racing my fifth year, and I'd be back in. And I just have to go back to Formula Two. What else yeah. did you do? And I had to find the money for that. And bless him, Tom Wheatcroft from Donington. I'd met him on the Tasman series. And Tom said, I'll help you anytime you need any help, lad. So he came in and, and footed the bill for a season in 70, which I did very well. But at the beginning of that, right at the very beginning, John Wire, actually, I lied, during 69, when I was still at Ferrari, yet I wasn't competing that much. 
um, I got a call from John, why would I go and test for him in the GT40? So I went to Thruxton and I tested in the GT40 to, with a view to going to Le Mans. And I thought, I'd tell Mr. Ferrari I've been offered this because I'm still under contract. And so I wrote and I said, um, you know, could I be released to do Le Mans um, for John Wire? And Mr. Ferrari came back and I hadn't got, unfortunately, got the telex, but it said on your contract, Ferrari. So I got the message pretty quickly that I shouldn't, couldn't drive for other people. And of course, <laughs> at that point, I, I had no idea that Ferrari was having negotiations with Ford with a view to winning you know, to, 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 to bind Ferrari up or whatever, yeah, yeah. or that, whatever they were trying to do, get together. And, and uh, so I obviously had to say, I couldn't drive the GT40 for Mr. Wire. And Mr. Wire said to me, you realize he will ruin your career. He, you know, you, you should do what you want to do. But still I didn't, I stuck with it. I've always been fairly honest like that. So I, I turned it down. Of course, Jack, uh, Pedro went and won um, the, uh, Le Mans that year. I, I, with their Belgian driver, I've forgotten his name terribly, but that was so. That was the beginning of my relationship with John Wire, who the next year then ran the GT nine seventeens, and so I went to and having had a, having had this GT forty test, they knew that I was good enough to be with them yeah. in the nine seventeen. So that's when I went and um, uh, you know actually had a test drive at Goodwood in September nineteen seventy. And because um, by that point, I was back in F2 and doing a bit of Formula One with John Surtees, a kind of sixth of the US Grand Prix and that sort of thing. And I'd done some pretty good drives during 70. I was leading the European Formula Two Championship. So, you know, I was obviously still a bit hot to trot. Yeah. And um, so that was it. And so I'd had the test at Goodwood with, against Ronnie Peterson and Pete Gethin. And for one reason or another, I got the drive. I couldn't believe I was quicker than Ronnie. Uh, but I think it was probably because he'd shown his complete passion for Formula One and therefore he should stay in that. Yeah. Whereas Pete Gethin and I were pretty much on a par and, uh, and maybe he talked too much about, about his girlfriends. I don't know, whatever it was, <laughs> I got the drive. Most of his girlfriends were my girlfriends anyway. So, but, um, <laughs> but anyway, Pete and I were great buddies and uh, I got the drive with John Wire. So, and that sort of made my career really. Yeah. And, of course, went on to drive the 917 that following year and then really sort of stayed with Porsche one way or another all the way through. Yeah, that's mad. Although, uh, although I didn't race every year, but they'd always put me in a – I wasn't under contract to them, but they'd always favour me in many ways and put me yeah. in a good yeah. car somewhere. Just um, just before we dive into uh, the, the, the Porsche chapter, um, I, I'd, I'd be fascinated to know what it was like in 1970 during the filming of Le Mans because – I mean, there nothing remotely like that had happened before. And, you know, we, we all know how kind of dangerous motor racing was, uh, particularly in that sort of period. And yet we've, we've kind of in and amongst the chaos of a Le Mans 24 hour race. There's um, a 917 with a, you know, whopping great camera attached to the front and back. You know, what, what, what yeah. did you as drivers think about? Did you think it was absurd or genius or a bit of both? Or? Uh it was funny because obviously I, I knew of Steve McQueen. I was one of his fans. I loved him in Bullet, Magnificent Seven, yeah. and all those movies. Um, but I was, again, I sort of pointed out, go back to 1970. Who the hell was I? I'd just come up into a bit of Formula One. Yeah. And in 1970, was scrobbling around wondering what the hell I was going to do next. And I did the Spa 1,000 kilometers for Jack Swatters in 1970. And Jack, Jack I'd met, he was the importer for Ferrari into Belgium. And I got to know him with Mr. Ferrari. 
And then he said, well, we'll do Salomon together in, you know, six weeks time. And then Mr. Ferrari apparently said to Jacques, I need Derek Bell in the factory team for Le Mans. Because obviously, I, I say obviously, but I had shone quite strongly at Spa in my first time there. So he said, well, I want Derek in the factory team. And Jack said, well, I'll have to ask Derek. And Derek did say, no way. I'm going to stay with Jack because he gave me my break in sports cars. And uh, so Mr. Ferrari basically, I, I, well, he basically said to Jack Swat, if you don't let Derek come to me, you won't get any spare parts for your car mm-hmm. for the race. So I had to go and race for Enzo at, the, at Le Mans. And I drove, um, you know, with Ronnie Peterson, who, again, we, we came back to be together again, funnily enough. And, uh, you know, well, I, I say funnily enough because we had our test drive following that in 1970. But John Warr obviously you can see both of us as being a moderate talent. And so um, I did my first Le Mans really for Ferrari. And then, of course, I did my test drive. And then I got the drive with 917. And then, of course, during that time after the Ferrari drive at Le Mans was when the Le Mans film was started. And Jack Swatters loaned or hired out his yellow Ferrari for the making of Le Mans movie because they needed obviously a bevy of cars for their sort of cast. So they didn't use Jacques' yellow car as such in the race. You very rarely see it, but you certainly see the red car because they painted it red and made it a factory car for the race. So they had a right number of factory cars and that was really what it was. And um, so, you know, I never really got initially, I never had any, um, idea that i'd drive a 917 because it was like you know the be all and end all of sports cars and then one day it just came about that i can't even remember it when they said would okay derek drive the 917 but by then by the time they did that they'd i'd obviously showed to them that i was capable of driving it at speed yeah and i didn't go off the road particularly so they thought well let's him let him stand in for steve on a lot of occasions so when steve didn't drive either me or joe siffert would generally replace him yeah. but the fact was that joe usually drove the the, the porsche against steve his t- he was steve's car teammate and so joe would drive one nine seventeen, steve with the other and i'd be the factory driver in the 512 ferrari that yeah. was basically the setup yeah and then the they had axes driving or they weren't driving the other ferraris etc etc but i it was only really myself richard atwood uh, was as he uses around all the time driving various cars, a very major part of the of the scenario, and that with that and and Joe Siffert, uh, you know, and then other drivers popped in occasionally and did a day here and a day there. But they liked the fact that I moved in to live there because I was doing Formula Two around Europe, as I mentioned, and then at weekends I could you know weekend or at weekends I could go off and race and then come back on a Monday morning and start filming again. Yeah, so that's when I started. Yeah, that's it would have been July, July, July seventy. Yeah. Difficult to get the years right because it, it's a long yeah. time ago, <laughs> and you think it, you know that it was seventy one, but in fact the movie was in seventy, which was, yeah. wasn't a great year for me. Yeah, I did finish second in the championship form to, to uh, Clay Regazzoni. So, all and I finished sixth in the United States Grand Prix. The only time I got a world championship point for Formula One. So it actually wasn't a bad year. But we also made the movie, which was a great experience and great fun. And the stories are endless, but you could talk about the movie for a whole hour. Yeah. <laughs> did you have a Did you have a great relationship with um, Stephen Queen during that? Yes, strangely enough, yes. Um, and there was a, somebody. There was a picture. I think it was on Twitter the other day. And it said, 
uh, Steve McQueen with his great friend Derek Bell, and we be became great friends. And um, we actually, at the end of the movie, we shared a house together for about three weeks, something like that, when the movie was joint with our contracts and our various homes had come up. So our two families moved in together. Yeah. And then when the film was over, I think I got closer to him because I ended up in, I got burnt when I, on one of the shots on the film and I got burnt. Um, and uh, because of that, you know, he came to visit me in hospital. I was only in a day, but he came to see I was all right. And um, I, I think that made us closer, but I was always there with him. As I said, it was Joe Siffert and Derek Bell. I mean, David Piper was there. I mean, no end of people and Richard Atwood. But I seem to split, I would say, did probably a more major part of time with Steve. And then yeah. subsequently afterwards, uh, I went to him and obviously he said, anytime you're coming through Hollywood, which one does every day, as you know, um, <laughs> anytime, anytime you're passing through you know, give me a call. And I was obviously racing in America, getting yeah. to at that time. So I went by <clears throat> and saw him in Hollywood and went out to dinner with he and Ali McGraw because he'd just married her. And um, uh, we kept in touch right up till within a few weeks of him passing. Well, well I, I wonder, um, Derek, if you could shed some light. I was speaking to kind of Brian Redman previously. He's had a fair bit to say on um, John Wire teams versus the Piek teams in the 70s. Mm. Um, yeah. And it, it was quite a bit of animosity there because um, John Wire was was meant to have like the official works team, wasn't he? And yeah. all of a sudden yeah. this kind of Salzburg outfit had come along. So like, what, what, what did you make of all of that? Well, I, I knew much less than Brian. I think Brian is a bit, a bit I mean, he and I are great friends. We, we haven't seen him actually for probably a year, but um, he, uh, because of the, the COVID and stuff. Uh, yeah. But um, I listened to his stories because he's got magnificent stories of his times at Porsche and the development of the initial 917. You have to realize that by the time I got in it, it was the most wonderful, wonderful car. You know, it had that spell with John Wire, John Horsman, and obviously the Porsche engineers, and they developed and sorted out the aerodynamics. Now, when I first drove it, I never knew any of these incidents. I never knew how awful it was, how dangerous it was, because that stuff doesn't really get printed. Plus, yeah. I wouldn't necessarily read a report about a certain race if I wasn't in it, yeah. <laughs> being a bit, a, bit, a bit like that. You know, there's so much to do as a young driver. You haven't got time to read all the sport motor news from cover to cover. Yeah. So you just reach the events that really affect you. So I never knew, and as I wasn't racing, you know, against the Salzburg car, particularly until 71, I didn't know any of the lip buildup. And when, when I went to drove that 917 at Goodwood, the golf car, I mean, I just got in it like it was any race car, which it wasn't. It was massively more powerful than any. I'd never driven something with 600 horsepower. I mean, Formula One. There's only 400 and something. Yeah. Um, and, but I drove it obviously quite with, with, my, with quite a lot of confidence. And, uh, you know, I, I couldn't criticize the handling at all. I mean, I could come and say there's a bit of understeer, a bit of an oversteer. But I was either stupid or else I just, the car was perfect. And I just thought the car was great. And remember, I'd driven the 512 the year before, Ferrari. And uh, that was my very words. I've said it many times. It was a bit truck-like. Um, <laughs> It developed later on with different sort of with, with modern technology. The 512 beca became a very nice car to drive. But when I first drove it, remember, it probably was the first sports car I'd driven. <clears throat> so consequently, when, you know, it felt heavy because it, it was compared to Formula 2 and Formula 1. Mm. 
and it did give you that impression. It was very so like you turn the wheel and you go one, two, three, whoops, and then that sort of thing. A very slow, sluggish. That was my first impression. And then by the time Ferrari had worked on it over the subsequent years and other drivers, obviously, um, they'd improved it to make it a more sort of compliant car. Yeah. But the 917 was like that from where go. So to compare the two, I can't. To compare that much more, I can't compare the two Ferrari Porsche much more than just said. But um, the Salzburg thing really, I knew they were there with just another team to beat. You have to realize when I went into sports cars, um, it really didn't happen. I mean, I did Le Mans in 1970, but I was with Ferrari. And of course, there'd be a couple of Porsches in front and we were like fourth, fifth and sixth in that first Le Mans. And then um, I didn't drive in that class again, really. And so I did Kyle Army for Jack Swatters back in the 512. And I think we finished fifth or something in the nine hours. Yeah. And and um, the next year, of course, uh, that, uh, which was basically 1971, I drove the whole year for John Wyatt. And I, I know that, you know, the Salzburg team were around and they were always very quick um, and as they would be. But I, in a way, I almost couldn't understand the politics. But the strange thing is I found I was having a, 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 my time was to be a racing driver, not to be involved with the politics or in on behind. Yeah. Brian was in there for three years battling away with it and he yeah. drove good cars and bad cars. And he was really, he got quite involved and he had, you know, the bloody crash as well. And, mm-hmm. you know, and so he was a little peeved with the whole, he, he had a good reason. I, I'm staggered. He carried on, you know, after he crashed yeah. on the Tiger Florio yeah. and I admire him for that. And when I hear his stories, are going, you're a hard bastard. Cause you know, to put up with that and still carry on, I, always swore if i'd got hurt i'd have just quit i was too chicken to go back and try to fight my way back from injury but who knows what happens when you get injured in something you love doing yeah but uh, so i honestly to get back salzburg thing i don't remember much about it i just knew we had to beat them <laughs> excellent good mantra what's yeah. um I, I and i'm sure you've been asked this plenty of times derek but with your um considerable success in endurance racing across all the, the major endurance races um obviously le mans daytona and, and spara perhaps the most notable but um like what what just suited endurance racing for you you know how how come that works so well from your point of view very pleased i could get a drive yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, but it's funny. I guess it's somewhere where if you do well, people, you know, with, I guess they're informed enough, the team owners or managers or whatever, and they say, well, that boy's doing well. We'll give him a drive in our car or we should have him in our car. You don't get Formula One teams really looking at you thinking, well, he's doing well in sports car. We should have him in Formula One. Yeah. Particularly if you've been there in a vague way, the way I had. But you remember, as I mentioned, that you got drives in Formula One through through being in the right place the right time yeah. you didn't get there by bringing in money and it's yeah. all totally changed i wouldn't say it's like that today i'm sure the stappen doesn't bring 400 million with him do you know what i mean but mm, yeah, yeah um down the field a bunch of them bring money somewhere yeah. along the line from the yeah. pages but we didn't have sponsors at all in those days mm. but why they why i didn't i mean you're not really asking me why i didn't make it in Formula one and i've often wondered i i, I remember it was in 1972, at the end of the 71 season, I'd been driving the 917s, as you know, against the Salzburg cars. And at the end of the year, that was the end of big sports cars. So it was really, like, oh, thanks a lot. I've just arrived and it's all folding up on me. What am I <laughs> going to do? And David York, uh, the Martini and Rossi team, 
uh, Gregorio and Vittorio Rossi uh, of Martini, they wanted to continue from sports cars, which ran against us in yeah. that 917 year. So they spoke to David York because David was very easygoing and he was a good manager, I think. And so they asked David, we would like to put a Formula One team together and would, you know, would you help us? So David said, sure. He said, I'll do it. But I've got Derek Bell has to be one of my drivers, which, you know, which he then told me about. And I was very flattered and honored by that. But that was the case. So, okay, fine. Uh, I was over the moon, but what car were we going to drive? And so David and I discussed it. I mean, not sort of only in time at the racetracks and chatted or maybe on the phone a few times. But David was the sort of person who would make his own decisions, having gone around and sniffed it out. And uh, he said, I think, or I, between us, we'd agreed we should go to Brabham. Brabham had the best setup. It was the early days of, I think, Bernie Eccleston, just about then, just about putting it together. They had a bloody wonderful car. And I don't think at that point they had sponsorship. So um, we went to them and they were very excited about it. Martini and Rossi were keen on it. And that was, and we looked like it was going ahead. And then suddenly David phoned me like in November, no, before that, probably October of 1971. And he says, you can't believe it. He said, Techno, who ran go-karts and then Formula 3 and Formula 2, wonderful cars, had Regazzoni, Sever, and numerous top drivers driving their cars. And it was actually Regas that beat me to the championship in 70 and F2. We ran our car out of Pagham a little Brabham, and he came in with a factory team with he and Sever in Formula 2 Technos with their own engines. I mean, we hadn't got a hope in hell, but we only got <laughs> lost by a couple of points. So that was good. But nonetheless, um, they had proved that they built good chassis, and I agreed. Uh, good handling cars, anyway. So David said, so David said, it, the, and obviously what had happened is that the Pettis, the brothers uh, of, of, of Rossi, the brothers Rossi had gone to, had been approached by Techno, and Techno said, look, we can build you an all-Italian car with an all-Italian team yeah. and perhaps beat Ferrari. Wouldn't that be great in Italy? <laughs> and, of course, um, sort of, if you like to say, uh, my friend, the Rossi pet brothers, didn't really sort of think twice about, thought, wouldn't that be wonderful to have our yeah, car yeah. Martini winning Grand Prix? If you're in the sport, as you two guys understand it, I'm sure enough, you don't win like that your first time out. It just <laughs> <Yeah>. doesn't bloody <laughs> happen. Particularly if you dig into it and see who's got the best setup and where's the engine coming from. In fact, the mm. engine came out of the back door of Ferrari anyway, but it was a year before his engine or something like that. So it was pretty much a disaster and the car should have appeared and it didn't. It, I think we had a run in December in, in, in uh, Turin at the Pirelli test track and it ran all day. But of course, you couldn't test it really because a it was, you know, very as a sort of a damp day. Plus, it was the the test track for trucks, so the guardrail was just about level with our necks. So if we slid off, we were going to just be beheaded, which is bloody stupid. Mm. And they and they sort of knew it because they knew that we could daren't drive fast. So therefore, we could never get any data on the car. Yeah, and so that was that. And we all went well. Like in York, he stood at the end of the day. He said, and David said. Well, you've got to say, my pal, he said, that ran all day, which wasn't. They didn't start till 11.30 and so on and so forth. Then we had an <laughs> Italian lunch, so it wasn't all day. <laughs> but, but, it, but what he was meaning was it didn't explode or anything yeah. like that. And I said, no, I mean, it ran, started every time. What could you say? But it wasn't very good, and I wasn't an expert in F1. And 
in damp conditions, how the hell could you find out? So, yeah. and so dangerous. So, and so they went ahead with it. And um, the car appeared, I think the first time it really appeared was for the French Grand Prix at Clermont Ferrand. And it started to fall apart there. Every time I went out for each session, it actually bent, it twisted, it broke in the middle in the end. So it ended in like two pieces. Yeah. And because they they decided to make the, the rear end of the car rather like a Cosworth, which Cosworth had done for the first time. And they made the back of the engine be an integral part of the chassis. Mm-hmm. So the rear suspension was actually located uh, on the back of the engine. Yeah. But of course, being a flat 12 engine, it was more difficult than a V8 because the V8, you had a bigger sort of mass of metal to mm-hmm. get into. And all it did was it brought all the bolts broke. And I got there on race morning, having complained each time I went out over Saturday, that it just went slower and slower, just went worse and worse through the corners. And they couldn't figure out what it was. And David York was standing in the, literally in the, in the middle of the car because he had no body on it. David was six foot tall, and he just said, you're not driving this old son. So I said, what the hell's wrong? And he said, look, and, you know, sort of of the nine bolts, four had broken, which holds mm, the engine uh, to the yes. back of it. That sort of thing. So, yeah. and they persevered, and, and I did, so I didn't do the race. And then it had appeared later. I can't remember. I remember it. I think it appeared in Canada later that year. Yeah. And I must admit, I did put it off on the warm-up, in the, on the on the sli- slippery roads in the fog, but in the in the warm-up but it was never going anywhere it was always going to be at the back yeah and so that was yeah. that and then of course after two years of that screwing around they then then martini and rossi went to brabham yeah. and of course the car then went on and won grand prix <laughs> as it would have done but that maybe i wasn't meant to be in formula one yeah. well this is it and but you know did you uh relish the challenge of endurance racing more or is it a case of you, you apply yourself <clears> kind <throat> of the same to well sports car racing came easier to me okay. but i always love when i drove formula one cars i mean it's just five six years ago i wrote i drove emerson fittipaldi's lotus 72 which he won the championship in yeah and i mean it was up, up in kyle army i drove and did about 20 laps or so and it was a dream i mean i just was like a you know a kid out there with toy. i mean just yeah. flipping it yeah i mean sliding it around and balancing it and i'm going now that is why a guy wins a world formula one championship because that's what the car should feel like yeah and i've had that on various sports cars i've driven but i never had really and john certes i mean the ts7 i drove in my very first grand prix for john which was 70 when i finished sixth i could have so easily finished third that day i mean i was running what would have been third position and about half three quarters of the way through the race suddenly I lost a bolt, a bolt broke or came out of the clutch and it started to vibrate. So I cut back on my revs because I thought I've got to finish a Grand Prix. I haven't done so at this point, but I've got to finish it. <clears throat> and um, it was an old engine, the Cosworth engine that Tom Weecroft had, which we had used for various other things. And um, I thought I've got to finish. So I, and I'd just overtaken Rainer Vsell for whatever, sixth place or something, whatever it was. And I, and I was pulling away from him. He was in the other works, Lotus. And then, of course, the vibration came and I had to back off. I've got to save this. I've got to get home. Yeah. So he then went by me. It sounds like so great, genuinely. And I finished sixth. And so I, and he finished third. <laughs> so I feel I could have, unless he had something in reserve, but none of us in those days kept reserve. We went flat out the whole time. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I um, still, again, the answer is really um, sports cars made me and I, and, and Formula One didn't. And, but yet, as I've said numerous times, you know, I'm still here. And yeah, in Formula yes. One, who knows how long I'd have lasted. I certainly would have been racing at 55 years old. 
mm. winning Le Mans, things like that. Very true. Or winning yeah. Grand Prix. Um, we're just talking about your sort of cars that were maybe not so desirable. <laughs> You've had but, one of them. <laughs> yeah. um, what would you say was your favourite race car? And consequently, what was your, you know, what was your worst race car? Well, the techno, the techno was certainly the worst. Yeah. Um, but I think it's difficult to say what was the best. I mean, to me, the most memorable was the 917. Mm-hmm. And the because of what it was and when it was. And 246 miles an hour is pretty memorable. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it, just, it still doesn't seem right that that happened to yeah. me. No, it's, it's, absurd. Absurd. It's, it's, it's absurd, isn't yeah. it? You know? yeah. How did it go that fast? I, it yeah. makes me wonder too. And the fact that it... I know I was younger, but I mean, you know, the fact was I knew what a good car was and a bad car was. And if it had been bad, I couldn't have done it. Yeah. If the car, none of us could have done it. If the car wandered all over the road, you couldn't have done it. Yeah. 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 Amazing feature. Yeah. Yeah. Outrageous. And I think, you know, sports cars and, and, and race cars obviously can, can do those sorts of speeds today, but back back then Derek it's 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 you in a car there's no kind of computer systems keeping it to the road you know your no, feet, no. Uh, feet are right at the front of the car and yeah and, yeah, yeah, yeah I just yeah in- incredible it is incredible but you know I mean I remember uh, um, what's his name um, Montoya he was at uh, Daytona a couple five years ago and, I, and we walked out onto the banking where there was a 917 and he said, you literally drove one. He was looking at He said, you drove one of these. You were absolutely <laughs> crazy. And, of course, you know, but, you see, when you drive like a Montoya does, which is on the limit the whole time, if it is a bad car, you know you are going to get hurt if it goes wrong. Yeah. But as time has gone by, the cars, I believe, have improved sufficiently that they can drive with all their skills and keep the car will stay on the road. It might not mm. be as quick as the other car, but it'll always be drivable. Yeah. Yeah. And the 917 was drivable, but there was, but you know, if anything had gone wrong, it wouldn't have been funny. If yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. But we never thought about it much either. Yeah. And so that was the night that was, that was the best car, uh, the most memorable car. But I think, um, obviously the 962 has to be the car of my life, really, mm. for the way. It became so. I mean, I won more races, I believe, in world championship than anybody else ever in that 962 or 956 mm. because I was there longer than most, you know. Yeah. Um, I, 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 yeah, 36 races, I think I won with, with Al Holbert as well and the American yeah. Championship. I mean, it was amazing. I mean, or 31, I don't know, something like that. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> uh, but, you know, I drove the Jules car and the 956 and the 962. I mean, I was there lucky, wasn't I, for sort of five years of the best time of sports car racing in well, a way. Without a doubt, I'd, I'd love to know where you mentioned the Jules car. I'd love to know what it was like to drive a 936 because, again, like back then, there was, you know, nothing else kind of really like it, really. No, no. Um, I mean, I didn't know much about other cars, too, although I had just had two years with Renault. Now, I think you have to look at the 70s in a different way because it started off with a 917 era coming to a close. It became the beginning of that funny sort of, they called it silhouette era. Yeah. The cars had to look like the road cars, but weren't. Yeah. So you had, then you came into the 935s and um, they were amazing animals of cars to drive it there. Mm. Another story on their own. And then during that period, I was still doing formula one in the early seventies in all the, albeit in not such good cars or in the old, dear old John's cars, 30s. Mm. And then um, 
I, you know, meanwhile, I was developing the, the Mirage Ford for John Wire. And then Mike and I finished fourth. I think we've, I, I mean, I won, I think, the thousand Ks of Spa at least once in the Mirage and, another, and some other races during that era in development. Fourth at the mine, 74 with Mike Hellwood, which was wonderful. And then 75, we won it with Jackie X. And and that and in 75 too, I drove for Alfa Romeo in the T33 Alfa. And we won a well, major part of the races. I think I, Pesco and I won five races and Moret, um, Mazzaria might have won five or four or five. But I don't think I did as many races because they didn't enter both cars everywhere. Uh, and that car was a hell of a car. I mean, it wasn't mm. quicker than the Renaults, but the Renaults all collapsed. You know, we, they would get pole and we'd win the race. In fact, very hollow to be world champ, sports car champion, which they never talk about. But we were, in fact, world sports car champions. And um, and then from that, you know, I drove the British Leyland car in, in the, uh, the mid-70s and then the, the Coupe Jag. And then, of course, along come Renault. And I did my two amazing years with Renault, which Renault Alpine as the only non-Frenchman in the whole setup, all the way through mechanics, the engineers, everybody. It was such an honor, but I had been quite successful prior to that. So therefore they wanted me and I was Brit. And I also spoke French, which I think helped. <laughs> and um, so, you know, I had that amazing two seasons. And the first year with Jean-Pierre Jabot, we, we actually, we were leading Le Mans, you know, all the way through till breakfast time on the Sunday. And then, Suddenly, uh, the, the, that bloody mules aren't straight where you're on full throttle in fifth gear or sixth gear for a whole minute of full throttle. Um, the, in, the, 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 the actual bores were losing their lubrication because nobody yeah. figured out how hot they got for so long. We lost the cylinder. And so we pulled out. It's the same happened with a little Porsche, actually, in the, my little Carrera GTR in 1979, same, or even 80. Same thing, just that sustained high revs and a four-cylinder. Yeah. So that was that. <clears throat> well, anyway, certainly the smaller engine. And uh, then one learned that, you know, on the Mulsanne straight, you always had to let it breathe. So uh, twi maybe twice on the straight, as you'll be full throttle, you just come off and then go back on again. Yeah. Enough to lose you a bit of speed. <laughs> but you had <laughs> yeah. to do it to get the bores, to get the oil at the top. Yeah, the lubrication. The yeah. 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 And so that, that was a great experience. So, in fact, the 70s weren't that bad. In fact, mm. at the time they were. I mean, in 79, I was going to quit. I thought, that's it. Isn't, I mean, sports car racing is just one race a year for Renault or one race a year for Porsche. Nobody was interested in doing the whole series. You can't live like mm, that. Yeah. And I was about to quit when Steve O'Rourke came along, who I didn't know, but from the Pink Floyd, and said, hey, we're going to run a couple of Lancias next year. Would you like to drive? And what do you think? And I said, well, let's chat. So I went, saw him in London, um, sort of in about 1979 uh, or 80. And I said, Steve, you, and I didn't know him. And I said, <laughs> you know, you'll be crazy to run Italian cars because only the factory teams really do well as, you know, as factory cars, Italian cars do. So he said, oh, what do you suggest? So I said, I think we should drive one BMW. You know, BMW give us help. It'll be reliable, it'll be strong, it'll never win them all, but it'll do well. Mm. So we went out and we, our first race, we were third and won the class at Silverstone, so, uh, uh, you know, in whatever that series, the World Championship was that time. So in March or April that year, and which would be 80. So um, that began my series again. And from that, I bumped into somebody who said, why didn't you drive for us at Lamar with Porsche in the uh, 936? So that's when I went 
to, to drive for them at Le Mans. And I never sat in the car until I got to Le Mans. And that was purely because Steve O'Rourke was so kind. And one of the few, no, I've never met anybody that's been malicious in Formula One. But certainly his generosity said, if Porsche wanted my driver, I'd be flattered to let him go because I know you could win in a Porsche. Wow. And I, went, wow. and I went and won the race with Jackie. And, well, I phoned up Manfred Yanker, in fact, and I said, hey, Manfred, I understand you're still short of a driver because I heard this at Monza when we were there in the, in the, in the, in the M1. I said, I hear you're short of a driver. He said, yes, Derek. I said, well, I could be available because the team owner says I could – he would think of releasing me. Mm. And he said, uh, he said, yes, Derek, that is fantastic. You're, you're now, he said, now I have the two best sports car drivers in the world. You will drive with Jackie. And I went, fantastic. Oh, yeah. Wow. Because there were one driver short of two cars. So I thought they'd put me in the second car, you know, yeah. just filling yeah. the debit. And he stuck me with Jackie. And of course, I never sat in it till we drove, we were on the grid. Uh, I don't know, on qualifying or practice, whatever. And my first lap out, I, you know, once I warmed up two or three laps, it was the fastest lap I'd ever done in my life around the mall. Yeah. And we went, and after that, we just went on and won the race. And that was my beginning, at really, of thank God my life in sports cars, but thanks to Porsche. Yeah. 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 Wow. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Is it, I mean, again, you know, indicative of your talents to have not been near the car before and, and to kind of go on to have that that level of success right? yeah well yeah, it's very exciting to say so but uh, the fact is that it was so easy to drive Paul, mm. i mean i who was i talking to frank Heaty, dario the other day over the weekend yeah he said i he said i drove your uh your nice activities <laughs> for me you know right? <laughs> yeah. I, I said i said oh good for you he said that's that's amazing he said you just turn the key and drive away yeah. it's absolutely true <laughs> it's absolutely true you know yeah. porsche built car i remember they built a plane they had the yeah. thing called a Mooney. Yeah. And I remember talking, I was around at that time, and I remember saying to Peter Schutz, who was part of that program, he was the one that actually got that Porsche back into racing with the 956, believe it or not, back yeah. in 1981. And uh, Peter was American, but yet German as well. And he said to me, no, Derek, he said, he said, if you got, buy a Porsche, you, put, you have a key in it. Why not if you buy a Porsche plane, you should just have a key? <laughs> and the Mooney, you literally got in it and sort of saw there was nobody near the prop and then turned the key and it started up. Why do you need all these buttons? Mm. I can see why in reality, if I was an engineer, I'd say, yeah, but you need to know if the fuel pressure is right and the water temperatures, are, it needs to read all the dials. So you need yeah. a different switch for each, but it was just their logic, you know, typical yeah. Porsche. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd, um, I'd love to know, but I mean, it's, it's sacrilege really to kind of gloss over five Le Mans victories and two world sports car championships. But uh, and again, you're so good with your time with media outlets. So I'm trying to ask questions that perhaps aren't asked as often. Um, but kind of regardless of the Le Mans victories, how special was it to race at uh, Le Mans and, of course, Daytona um, with your son, Justin? Oh, yes. Well, I mean, obviously, um, I never, ever thought about driving with my son. The weirdest thing is I've now got another son and it did cross my mind. And Kevin Jeanette in Florida in West Palm Beach at Gunner Racing he said, "DB, I want you better get just Sebastian to get get to hurry up and be seventeen. And I said, <laughs> he said, "Because I want him to drive with you and your other brother, with Justin, at, in a car at Daytona." Yeah. Well, we never did, and I wouldn't I wouldn't say it's even out of the question now. But we haven't talked about it in a couple of years. But I did drive with Justin, as you know, in eighteen uh, sorry two thousand and nineteen mm. in the Porsche Clap in the Daytona Classic. Uh, with Gunner, with Gunner, and the, the young owner of the car, but with, with Kevin Jeanette's son, 
he prepares the car. And uh, we had a most wonderful sort of we only six hours of 24, but I was driving the same car that we drove back in the late 80s. Fantastic. And it was just to be back in that Lernbrad car, it's just unbelievable. And we were doing, we were running quicker. We were still doing 200 mile an hour, you know, about <laughs> 195 wow. past the pits. And it was great. I mean, we drove as fast as if it had been a race, I mean, yeah. literally, and uh, which it was a race, but um, a real race. And it was just fantastic. So to drive with, with Justin, I think, with the, with the McLaren, which and Andy Wallace, of course, without whom we couldn't have done it. It was a wonderful, wonderful experience. Amazing. Yeah, mm. Very cool. Very, very cool. Um, can I take take you on road cars? Um, if you really seen, insist. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we talked about your your um, your the legend car that you've got now. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. How what your sort of um, your answer to the question there was when I mentioned road cars, you sort of looked uh, maybe a little bit derogatory. <laughs> um, non, do, nonplussed. Yeah. Do, do well, you... After what we've been talking about, they're pretty, pretty <laughs> lame. Well, this is it, yeah. Yeah. Lame, yeah. 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 So is, do you enjoy road driving? Um, yeah. You do? And yeah. What... Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I'm very lucky. I've got, you know, a couple of cars, two or three, three cars, to be honest, yeah. which are very special to me. Mm-hmm. and uh, often people say to me you know journalists like yourself you know sort of if you had all the money in the world which car would you buy yeah would you go out and buy and I, I i still i would i've said for years and i'd say it now i've got i've got the cars i would buy there's nothing out there that there's lovely 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 glorious cars but i've got the cars that i love yeah uh, just by ch- circumstance one way and another and uh, in, in all honesty, the, obviously, what, the one is my 924 Carrera GTS, which yeah. sits just 100 yard, 50 yards from here and is about to be used in quite a lot of Porsche classic stuff in the next 12 months, I believe. And oh, um, um, I love that car. And um, I mean, I've had it. I've had it since 1980. Yeah, from near. No, no. Yeah, since the beginning, since 1982. Hold on. When they brought the nine, they delivered it to me at Paul Ricard, yeah. <laughs> when I uh, was testing the 956 in that very first test program. And I've loved it ever since. And uh, it, it's awful to say, and I hate to say this to Porsche enthusiasts, but I think I have muttered about it before. I, well, I know I have, but um, I was never a great 911 passionate person because yeah. I, I liked a car that would take me home without me worrying about driving it. Hmm. And I always felt with a 911, it was a driver's car and had to be driven. And it had its own mind and it had its own character, which I admire. But I didn't always need that driving home at night. And I'm not saying I was out drinking or anything like that, but I like to get in the car. If I want to get to be to be excited and get frightened, I want to be on a racetrack. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to be on edge all the time. And I think the early 911s, with all due respect to anybody that was involved with those cars, and I can quite see why people love them now. And I'd love to have a mid-70s 911 yeah. or a late 70s 911 just because I love driving. I get in, I go, oh, my God, it's so lovely. It's so mm. raw and so real. But that's because of why I loved it. At the time, I didn't because I get all my raw, real racing in racing sure. cars. Yeah. And I didn't need to drive back from Spa wondering if I was going to make it back to the ferry because of yeah. you know the car was i'm driving <laughs> at 100 miles an hour and it's diving all over the road i'm not saying that was really what its character was but it certainly it kept you occupied now that's yeah. why you bought them because they gave you a racing experience they gave you the thrill the buzz the the whole essence of, of sports car that's the word yeah. 
Um, so when I had the Carrera GTS 924, that is, um, it was just so easy to drive. It was front engined and I, and, and, you know, myself and Al Holbert drove that thing. And we were up at fifth place at eight o'clock in the morning in that damn thing in the rain because it was just so basically so good, so well balanced. We were good in the rain. Yeah. And um, we were getting like, you know, nearly four hours on a tank full of gas. <laughs> so we didn't have the pit stops. <laughs> so we saved four minutes at least every two hours on all the other people. Yeah. And so suddenly we're doing really well until again the piston blew rather like the Renault did, and we ended up running on three cylinders and finishing twelfth or something. But that is that was I still have that car and I adore it, and yeah. um, it, it just is one of those special special cars. So is, then, is that your following, is, is that your one car that you would you know if you just had to have one car would that be it? One road. Oh, car? Oh, you haven't asked me that. Sorry, you're asking me. I have had to have one road car. Yeah, well, let, you let's come. That? Let's come back. I, let's I, come back to that. I'll let I, you continue. Sorry, and, and then after that, you, and then after that, I had, or not after, but at the same time, I've always been a Ferrari passion. Had a Ferrari passion, a because I knew Enzo. Yeah, and I'm very lucky to, in spite of what people said, to have raced for Enzo Ferrari. How many Brits have driven for Enzo? And mm-hmm. even Lewis Hamilton, I believe, would love to race for have raced for Ferrari. All right, he wouldn't have got to know Enzo, and it would be quite different. But I mean, I knew Enzo Ferrari and we used to go out to dinner together. And every day I was there, he would call me in the morning into his study and we'd have a chat. And, you know, he'd pick me up in his two plus two from my hotel and take us out to dinner. Yeah. I mean, and when we walked into the restaurant, he would open the door for me to go in in front of him. I mean, I mean, it's beyond blowing. comprehension. It's mind yeah. blowing. I mean, I, uh, it was just mind blowing. And, mm. um, uh, just special, and I, I don't know why it is he liked English British drivers, but he seemed to. When you go yeah. back, you know, with Mike Hawthorne, Peter Collins, um, and, and and Sterling, he adored, and I mean, just goes on and on the drivers that him. Mike Parks, and I'm sure I'm missing a um, a couple out. Well, yeah. Red, but, Redman, I suppose well, he, he uh, tried to get Brian yes, quite a lot. Did. Well, Brian did. Yes, Brian Redman was there. Yeah. Um, so, and I know Brian doesn't hold quite as much passion for it because he had a nasty accident, I think, in one, or had some experiences that he didn't like. But you know, I was there. anyway. Whatever it was, I was lucky to be there when I was there and know him yeah. when I knew him. And all my have is good things to say about my time there, and I wouldn't have missed that for the world. And people sort of say, "Ah, yes, but you know, if, you know, my, what about Michael Schumacher?" I said, "Michael." Michael never met Enzo. I mean, to me, the fact that, I mean, Michael earned millions, became the world, one sportsman's richest sportsman in the world through basically through his incredible driving ability at Ferrari. Yeah. Along with Ross Braun and others, of course. Um, but he still didn't meet Enzo. And I can't put a figure on what that's worth. But I never met, I never made any money out of it. But yeah. I, I, I knew Enzo and I went yeah. out with him. And I got a photograph with him. I didn't ask for, for a selfie, but I, somebody sent me. I got a picture <laughs> in my book. And, um, you know, that means the world to me. Yeah. Only because it's a personal thing. And I think we all do things in our lives, not because we can brag about them, but because you remember them and you have memories. And mm-hmm. that's a major part of my memory. So and soon after I left, I remember when I actually was at Ferrari, I had an E-type Jaguar. Yeah. Uh, convertible. I remember driving it down to, to the Italian Grand Prix, down to, to the factory. And I remember parking it outside the front gate at Marinello. And uh, I went in then because they obviously wouldn't have bloody E-type in, would they? <laughs> uh, so, 
so I parked outside in the street, outside the um, the Cavalino. And uh, I went in to see the, the old man, and I came out an hour or so later. And when I came out, it was lunchtime. I couldn't see my car. It was surrounded by blue jack, blue overall mechanics all over my E-Type. It was hilarious. <laughs> and I'd never seen an E-Type close up. And I know that the old man thought, always said that what he reputed to have said that the e-type was the most beautiful car ever built yeah and uh you know there was i with it and i didn't know all about that i i didn't get involved in politics i did you know i didn't say oh i can't drive an e-type i'll go and get myself because i couldn't afford to buy a bloody ferrari yeah. subsequently, <laughs> subsequently i did buy a ferrari and uh, i had a 275 gtb4 thanks to jack swatters from brussels um, I ended up buying, I mean, I mean, it was $5,000 I bought it for in 1971 or something. Mm -hmm. It was astonishing. And I kept it for a couple of years, and it was silver and had the dark blue interior. And I just adored that car and used to go up and down to Maranello over various stuff that I was doing around the early 70s. And, um, and then ultimately sold it because I ended up with two children. There was no room in the back for two children, yeah. and I didn't have enough money to have three cars. So I sold it. And uh, that was it. And then, lo and behold, uh, uh, soon after that, I said, "Oh, I had it. I bought a Daytona with the with the, with the money I got for it, which was set five thousand dollars. I think I paid seven for a Daytona, and I had that for two for years until obviously I said couldn't get the kids inside it. So that, and I remember I drove down to the French Grand Prix in the Daytona. It brings back a memory that I remember. My one of my dreams was to race in the Monaco Grand Prix, and. Um, but drive there in my Ferrari. And lo and behold, in 1972, when the Techno was being built or had been built, the idea yeah. was it would be the Italian Grand Prix. And, um, you know, supposedly there would be its first outing. And believe it or not, Mr. Bell, your Ferrari Daytona is now complete at the factory at Maranello or Modena. Come and pick it up. So I went down to pick it up. Never forget it. And I walked into this room. Saw this, by the, I don't know. Not very big, and about 25, 30 Ferraris, and they're all different colors. And I'd ordered Bleu Chiaro, which is like bluey green yeah. color. I didn't want the light blue, and I didn't want silver. There was this color I'd never seen before. And I walked into this room, and they said, Oh, there's your car over there. And thank God it was the one that I looked across the room and said, That is the one I want, because I'd <laughs> only chosen it from a little color chart. That yeah. Like you would a paint pot, you know, to paint yeah. a bloody toilet. Anyway, <laughs> that's so. Anyway, and then I drove off in it. Of course, drove to Monaco, and when I got there, Techno didn't turn up. So uh, I drove into Monaco in my Ferrari Daytona and felt really important and wonderful. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I didn't have a car to race. But oh, I had a Ferrari oh Daytona. No. Yeah. Anyway, that was um, that was the story of that. So <laughs> I had the Daytona. So then I sold it with a year or so later. Yeah. And um, and. Uh, I, then I got into BMWs because there was more, and I was racing for BMW in 73 for the factory. And, um, you know, I had one of those coupe Batmobiles. And, yeah. um, but I always said one day I'll get another Ferrari. So later on, from like 90, mid, mid 80s uh, towards late 80s, no, mid 80s, I had a fabulous manager and his wife called David Mills and Christine Mills. When she, they created a thing eventually called Hope for Tomorrow. Be, a cancer charity where we mm -hmm. provide these mobile mobile chemotherapy units. I think we're on our 15th or something like that now. Ross Braun's involved and Martin Brundle. I could get a plethora of people that are now involved basically because members of the family have been touched by cancer. Yeah. And so these units have six uh, 
in each truck, they'll have five, four to six, depending on the size, um, you know, so treatment rooms. So they could be in your village in the middle of, you know, sort of, they, they have them by county. And we're up to 15 counties or 14 Amazing. counties right now. And we have a very good deal with Mercedes, or have had. And the, the money to build is put up by the NHS. And they provide the staff, but we do actually everything else. Brilliant. And it's been going really well. And we've got some really top technology just come out that's come into them, which we'll be using. Mm. And so we'll be at one village in the morning and there will be another one 20 miles away in the afternoon. So people don't have to get on trains and buses and trains or yeah. should I say Fantastic. buses and trains and buses. Yeah. And it's worked really well. And that was my manager, David and Christine Mills, bless their hearts. And they both subsequently succumbed to cancer. Uh-huh. So it still persists and still going very well. But obviously, one's always in need, desperate need of money. And um, we raised a ton of money at a big event at Goodwood we did about a month ago. We yep. raised £150,000 in one day, which was wonderful. And, and we raised money for Damon Hill's charity too that day. So it's actually wonderful. It's a day called Veloce. Anyway, um, so, that, so I ended up, my manager David ended up having a Ferrari. Uh, 550 Marinello. But he always had nice cars. He wasn't through what he earned from me, I can assure you. He <laughs> so he had a 550 Marinello. And um, and one day I said, if ever you sell it, I want to buy it. And it was silver and it has dark blue interior leather, just the same as my 275. Yeah. So sad, sadly, he passed away four years ago, five years ago, but I had just was buying it at that point before he was ill. Mm. So I have it in the garage as well. And so I've always had a, a passion about V12s. Yeah. And then, of course, I have my lovely blue one. So I'm quite happy, actually. So I don't really want anything else. Well, it's a, it's a great garage, without a doubt. So yeah. Yeah. it's spot on. What, what I want to say is, you know, I alerted to it earlier on in our chat that you're so good with um, chatting to enthusiasts and, and members of the media and whatnot. So we are kind of so grateful of your time. No, we, we really have kind of um, skimmed the surface of your kind of <laughs> remarkable time, career. It? Well, yeah. it's, you know, it's, it's great, but I mean, I've, I've got your book here, uh, Derek Bell, yeah. my racing life. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and I'll just say, look to, to, to our uh, listeners that if they would like to learn a little bit more um, and maybe uncover lot, some, yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. A lot, more, a lot more reasons. Yeah, more yeah, reasons yeah. To, 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 to give the book a read yeah. because it, yeah. it, it's, okay. a, it's a it's a great read, and as I say, we really have just scratched the surface here. So yeah. I, um, I appreciate it. Anytime, anytime you you know you get bored, give me a call if you have something. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll uh, we'll look forward to seeing your um, nine two four um, Carrera GTS because I think it's down the road at our local Porsche Centre at Bournemouth. It's going classic, to be, it will be. Yeah, it's not there, classic right? Guys, it soon. Will, so yeah. um, we'll, we'll look forward okay. to seeing that. But yeah, Derek, okay. like I say, thank you very much for joining us thank, on Nine Works Radio. You, we really appreciate it. Thank Amazing. you both. Thank, thank you very much. Cheers, guys. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by our very kind Patreons. If you enjoy the podcast and would like to join them in supporting us, you can do so at www.patreon.com backslash 9worksradio.